The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Skin care and plastic surgery are hot topics these days. Let Dr. Rubenstein answer your questions and explain what you'll want to look for in aesthetic products and cosmetic procedures. Get ready for a discussion about all things aesthetic. Now, live from Miami, Florida, American Board Certified Plastic Surgeon, Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Welcome to New Reflections in the year 2012. Happy New Year, everyone. We're back for another great year of New Reflections. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, and we're going to start the year off with something that's really hot in the news right now. Some of you may have seen that there's been some issues with breast implants, particularly breast implants that were made in France by a company called PIP, and we're going to talk about that. In fact, the whole show today is about breast implants. The show's name this week is Breast Implants from Beginning to the End. We're going to talk about the very dawn of breast implants, where they came from, how they came about, what's new about them, what's changed over the years, and are they still safe? Joining us today, and we're very, very privileged to have uh, Dr. Thomas Biggs. Dr. Biggs is a board-certified plastic surgeon. He has been in the leadership of nearly every plastic surgery society. He's been the editor-in-chief of the Aesthetic Plastic Surgery Journal, and he's just a, probably the foremost authority on breast implants particularly. In fact, he was around part of the team that developed the very first breast implant. So it's my great honor and privilege to introduce to you Dr. Thomas Big. Dr. Big, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, I, I assure you, we're, we're getting the better end of this deal. You have so much to say about breast implants. You know, I wanted to tell the audience a little bit about breast implants to begin with. You know, the idea of, of making a, a breast larger and using something to stuff in there and make it bigger started actually in the 19th century. It was in 1895. Vincennes Cherney was the first doctor that got the idea that, gee, maybe I could take some of this tissue that I've taken out and remove a fatty tumor, a lipoma, and so he had this ball of fat, and he said, you know, maybe I could use this to, to make someone's breast bigger, and he took it, and the same patient, he took that lipoma out, he went ahead and put it in her breast, and that was the world's first breast augmentation, using her own fat. Now, isn't that interesting? Because later in the show, I want to talk to you about some of the work that you're doing now on fat transfer and breast reconstruction and breast augmentation. It seems like we've come almost 360 all the way around. Since that lipoma, there have been lots of things tried, and, and you were really in the thick of it. You know, before your time, there were some you know less than desirable things tried. Maybe ivory uh, was carved into a breast implant. Glass balls were tried. Various forms of rubber. There was a foam sponge that people tried. In fact, one of the more interesting ones that I found in some research was they had a, a ball of tape a special kind of tape that was rolled into a ball and then used as an implant. I thought that was kind of interesting. But then 
Actually, in the early 1960s is when you were working with Dr. Tom Cronin and Frank Giroux. And tell us a little bit about how this all started. Where did the modern breast implant come from? Well, I, I will. Uh, may I go back a little farther, though, in history? Sure, um, please. In the year 2000, the Vatican wanted to assemble all of the current knowledge in the medical world, and so they invited specialists from every every field to come to Rome and to present the status of their specialty. And they asked five plastic surgeons, and I was one of those five, and they asked me to talk about the breast. And I thought, well, now what am I going to say to the Pope about the breast? <laughs> and so I started off by saying that the... the uh, the the physiological purpose of the breast is to nourish the young, and certainly I thought the Pope wouldn't disagree with that. And 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 but then I, I then I went on to say that, however, that's only uh, only several months out of a woman's mature life, and the rest of the time the breast is there. And so then I said, let's go back way way back in history, and the and the earliest pieces of art we find, we find that. That, that people are differentiated by some have breasts and some don't. And so the breast has been the external symbol of a woman's gender since the, since the beginning of our recorded evidence of humankind. And it was, it, it was very, very emphatic as to who was a woman and who wasn't a woman based in, this, in these pieces of sculpture that date back 3,000 years and subsequent art as it went along. So, so the identity, what you're saying is the identity of a woman is based upon the idea that she has breasts, and so it's one of the early thoughts of doing breast augmentation were to help women with their female identity. Yes, and, 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 and there's been so much that I've learned about it all. I, I started dealing with women's breasts and breast problems when I was a surgery resident back in, starting in 1958. What is that? That's 54 years. And, and we didn't understand then. Uh, the woman who came in with cancer of the breast, we told her, well, you've got to have your breast off, and, and that's the only way you're going to save your life. And we didn't spend one second understanding and realizing the magnitude of the, of the trauma that that, that that put on that poor woman. We didn't understand that. And it took me a while before I began to realize that the breast was an extremely significant piece of structure, piece of anatomy to the woman's feeling about herself. And I, I'm going to make a big point of that. It's not for the purpose of attracting a man or for the purpose of making other women envious. It's to make her feel better about herself, more confident of her own gender. And that's saying an awful lot because there's so many jokes about breasts, and all those jokes sort of irritate me because breasts aren't funny. They're, they're a very, very important part of a woman's anatomy. You know, it, it's a really important point. One thing I want to say about that, it, even today, and you're talking about a half a century ago, and even today in modern reconstructive surgery, you know, all the things that we can do to make beautiful new breasts for women with breast cancer, there's still uh, probably at least half of the women undergoing mastectomy that don't have that conversation that their surgeons, the general surgeons that are removing their breasts with mastectomy are still not talking to them consistently about the options of reconstruction and having it done immediately so you maintain your identity throughout that process. 
Exactly. And I think that for the women who are listening to this program, I think that if you should have the misfortune of having a lump in your breast, I think you should have part of the conversation. Tell me what is going to be done in regard to the reconstruction. And uh, just get it out in the open at the very beginning because she may say, oh, I don't care. I just want my life saved. Well, yes, that's true. She does want her life saved. At the same time, in saving her life, she's still going to go on and live another 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So I think a woman should say up front with the doctor, tell me about subsequent reconstruction or immediate reconstruction at the time of the operation. Right, and I can tell you that the immediate... things need to be on the table with the woman when she's talking to her surgeon. I couldn't agree more. Immediate reconstructions, of course, this is a subject for a whole other show, but immediate reconstructions, the results can be so fantastic. You can almost challenge someone to, to identify which breast is reconstructed and which breast isn't. It isn't the, the art of reconstruction has come such a long way. So here, it really has. Just, so you've identified now, you have this understanding in, in your own maturation and thought process about uh, breast and, and breast augmentation. Here you are, it, it's around 1959, 1960, and, and you're starting to work on this. Yeah, well, I'll tell you that story. That's a, that's a very interesting story. We, we did have breast implants, but they were in, in, in the early 60s, but they were very, very poor, and they, and they, were, they all were failures, but, but the companies were manufacturing them. And in 1961, um, uh, my my mentor and subsequently my partner for 22 years, Dr. Thomas Cronin, went to, to New Orleans and and at a, at a plastic surgery meeting where he met a former resident of his, and they engaged in conversation. How are you? How's your family? What's new? And in the course of that conversation, he said, "Well, there is something new in my city, which was Midland, Michigan. There is a company called Dow Corning that has a new product, and this product is has very little." Very little creates very little body reaction, and it can be made into various densities. So it can be made solid, it can be made liquid, it can be made gel. And so, oh, that's very interesting. So he goes home, to, and then two days later, uh, um, while he's gone, Frank Giroux, who was a resident, went to the blood bank to get a bottle of blood for a baby that was had been burned. And he was walking down the hall, and it just so happened that was the day they stopped putting liquids into glass bottles and started putting them into plastic bags. And he's walking down the hall, 2 o'clock in the morning, he's 28 years old, and he has this warm bag of blood in his hand, and he, he thinks, this feels like a breast. And that's this is a true story. And so uh, the next day, he's on, Dr. Cronin's coming around seeing patients, and he sees these bags hanging there next to the bed, and Dr. Giroux says that we've started putting all the fluids into plastic bags now, not, not bottles. And he said, here, feel it. So Cronin felt it, and he too felt that it felt like a breast. And with the knowledge that he had gained from this casual comment that he'd, that he'd, that he'd heard in New Orleans, he called Dow Corning and asked him if they'd be interested in making a breast implant. And that's how it all got started. And so they, got in, they were enthusiastic, and they made us a small prototype, a very small one, and we put it into one dog, Esmeralda was the dog's name, and the dog survived, and then we were ready to go, and they then manufactured a, a pair of implants for us, and, and we got a patient, and, and that was the first case. And so now, 1962, the very first breast augmentation, that was yeah. a silicone-filled breast implant. Yes, it was a silicone, it's a silicone bag filled with a silicone gel. That's correct. How about and now that that patient 
Do you have any contact? Have you heard anything from that patient? Yeah, I, I talked to her on the telephone several months ago. Uh, and I called her to see how she was doing, and, and as I'd done every several years during the time. And um, and she said she was doing fine, that she might want to have the implants out. And I said, oh, really, why? She said, well, because they're, they're too hard and too large. And I said, well, sure, come on in and we'll take care of you. I thought, boy, this is a, really an opportunity to see the very first breast implant. And then she said, well, I think I might want smaller ones put in. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for her. Yeah, good fantastic. Her. But, yeah, but she hadn't come, uh, so I'll have to give her a call back and say, "What's holding you up?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure. I'm sure that uh, when she makes her mind up, she'll be right back in your office. That's incredible. That's a 50 year old breast implant, a set of breast implants, and yeah. the the very original ones ever used. Now, the implants at that point, you know, you had you mentioned that there were other people using different materials, but here you come in 1962. And you guys put in that the very first Dow Corning yeah. silicone filled breast implant. And how how did it grow? Because you know you did that one test case. And how did it get to be so popular that more and more women came looking for it? Well, we we, we did that, and then we did several others. And and um, and Frank Giroux was in charge of that project, and I was in charge of a project where we used where we would inject a silicone. Uh, that that we would take the liquid silicone and we'd add a catalyst to it, and we had five minutes to inject it before it became a gel. And so I took up that project where I was injecting these liquid, these syringes full of liquid silicone that had had a catalyst just added to them. And uh, the, the thought was that maybe that was the solution to the problem, not a not a manuf, not a not a bag filled with gel. But it turned out that that was not a good project. That Frank's Frank's project using the implant itself was better. And so he stopped doing the injections and then did nothing but the implants. And uh, that, so that's fascinating. You know, uh, there is a significant problem, and we see it here in Miami. And, and I guess for many years, even though your research showed that it, the, the implants were a better material to be using and that you had you know, better results, the, it, the use of silicone injection continued. And in fact, you know, it continued into tens of thousands of women having silicone injections, and you see the sequelae now. Women coming in with very firm, hard breasts with uh, scar tissue around it. Well, the, 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 I would urge any woman who's interested in having her breasts made larger to not engage in silicone injections, because the law, there's, the, there's a laundry list of problems that in, are incumbent with that operation. The implant itself is very safe now, and that, and it's much much better. To go with that rather than the injections. Yeah, I would I would concur. We're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, we're going to continue just a fascinating talk about breast implants from the world's foremost authority, Dr. Thomas Biggs. We'll be back in just a few minutes here on New Reflections. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. Make sure you do your homework. Why? This is not my car I'm working on. I may settle for an okay job on that, but I won't settle for anything less when it comes to my body. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. 
People pick a doctor based on trust. You can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. That's 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard in the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccinello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we're having a fantastic discussion about breast implants, and we're just talking with uh, Dr. Thomas Biggs. And Dr. Biggs, once again, is probably the world's foremost authority on breast implants. He was on the original team that developed the first one. We just heard the story of how that came about. And one of the last things, Dr. Biggs, that you said as we were going to break is that implants, uh, as compared to silicone injections, are by far the safer choice the more effective choice and get better results. And I just want to reiterate that as we come back from break because, you know, here in Miami we do see a number of women that have free silicone injections and they're getting it into not only their breasts, they're getting it into their buttocks, uh, other, even in their face, other parts. I've done many operations to try and remove part of these, uh, or if not all, if you can get it all, you never really can get all that silicone out. And removing silicone is, is just a disaster surgically. It's very, very difficult to do. It creates a lot of scarring in the tissue. and So if anyone listening is even remotely considering silicone injections, please think twice, think, think three times before you go ahead and have those injections. That's very well said, uh, Dr. Rubenstein. Very, very well said. It's true. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we were talking about the safety of implants. There's a story that's been in the news that is very concerning. Uh, the, the story is about the PIP company and the PIP implants. It seems that uh, these implants, which have been used a significant amount throughout the world, uh, all over the world, mostly in Europe and in South America, these implants were manufactured in France, and it's come to light in just the last year or so uh, that the implants, these are silicone-filled breast implants, the silicone used in the manufacture of these implants was not of medical grade, and the, the implant manufacturing process has never been to American standards. And the problem that we're seeing now is that there's a significantly high rupture rate with these implants, and that when they rupture, this silicone is not the proper type of silicone and then becomes exposed to people's tissue. 
Tell us about the PIP implants, because I, I know that you know, you've been there for the, the, the beginning of the PIP company. I know that uh, you've had them, the opportunity to look at them, use them, work with them. Tell us about PIP. What was their idea, and, and what happened? What went wrong? Well, uh, I don't really know factually a lot more than what you've just said, but, but it, it appears to me that uh, this company was fraudulent, to a great extent, because certainly they knew they were using non-industrial, non-medical grade M- silicone, that they're using an industrial grade silicone, because it was much less expensive. They knew they were doing that. So knowing they were doing that and uh, uh, knowing that they're putting patients' lives at risk or health at risk, uh, they, they, were, they were very fraudulent, and they're, they're, there needs to be some action taken. Now, at the same time, I would also say that where was the French FDA? I know that the FDA watches every move made by our manufacturers. That the FDA, you can't do anything with the implant or with any of the products that the FDA doesn't fully know and understand. And so uh, where was the French FDA in this? I don't know. Um, well, that's, that's an interesting thing. You mentioned the FDA. There's two things I want to mention about that. First of all, you make the great point that the FDA in the United States, in the Food and Drug Administration, FDA of the United States of America, is the body uh, of the government that looks over and controls and manages all the different medical devices and the drugs that are used in the United States. And they really do their job very, very carefully. There are no devices that are used in the United States uh, that have not been scrutinized by the FDA. And... Uh, I would I would venture to say and see if you agree with me. I I think breast implants specifically may be the single most scrutinized medical device in the history of medical devices. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. It's been unbelievably heavily scrutinized. So the products that are coming out now, I feel are very very safe, and I I don't hesitate to use them. I wouldn't hesitate to have any of my family have them. Not one molecule would I hesitate. So let's, let's talk about, I mean, there's a big difference between, and, and the, in the United States, let's just make a, make a very important point. In the United States, there are only two manufacturers that are approved by the FDA for use, and that's Mentor and Allergan. And Allergan has had a number of name changes. So for those of you who are listening and might have different names on the little identification card you got when you had your breast implants put in, well, Allergan used to be a company called uh, Inamed who used to be a company called McGann. So whether it's McGann, Inamed, or Allergan, we're talking about the same line of products. They are all safe. Today, Allergan implants and Mentor implants are safe devices. They're approved for use in the United States, and you don't have to have any concern about putting those implants in. Now, getting back to the PIP issue, PIP has never been approved in the United States, and you were talking about the FDA. The second thing I wanted to say about that I don't know if you know this, in the year 2000, the American FDA warned the French government, they did an analysis of the PIP implants, and they warned the French government that in 11 different ways, the production of those implants did not meet American standards. And they, they voiced significant concern about them being deviant from the standard that should be upheld for the manufacture of breast implants. The French government knew that in the year 2000. That's right. It's amazing. And nothing really was done. And so now here we are. Let's, let's talk a little bit about 
what the problem is with this industrial uh, type of silicone. You know, I, I was uh, looking and I saw they're they're comparing the silicone that was used in these uh, in these implants to approximately the same kind of silicone that's used in electronic devices. Yeah, well, it was the the the, the Dow Corning Company uh, before they were in the implant business. They did make uh, insulation for electrical wiring, and uh, and that's what their job was. And then then they got into the medical devices, and that's when they began to realize that they couldn't use industrial products because they had too many impurities. So the medical grade has has virtually no impurities in it, whereas the industrial grade has plenty. That would make it more and more durable and more stand up better and so forth. But without those impurities, we have the medical grade, and that's where the that's where the difference lies. So, so now here's the thing: if you have industrial silicone in your breast implant, and now we're seeing more and more of these PIP implants. You know, when you look at the numbers, uh, they estimate. About 300,000 women have PIP implants in place in the world. But all these women that have, I mean, it's a huge number of patients. This is a, a real, it's almost a pandemic disaster. Yeah. And, and now these women that are walking around with PIP implants that have industrial-grade silicone in them, if this implant breaks, and we're seeing much higher rupture rates with the PIP implants than uh, than we see with the American manufactured implants, we'll talk about that a little later. But if these implants break, what would you expect to happen? What would the reaction of the body be? Well, I can't tell you exactly because I don't. I don't I, I've not seen any of these patients. But but the industrial grade silicone is far more toxic to the body than the medical grade because of all the impurities. So the body would be exposed to, to um, molecules that could be very unpleasant to the body, very harmful to the body. I, uh, uh, what, what's I think the they reaction come out, to be honest with you. I, I, I dare say that, that they, all those implants should be removed. And that was going to be my question to you, because, you know, there's, there's some controversy here. Uh, the French government, and interestingly, the Venezuelan government, because apparently a lot of these implants were placed in Venezuela, the Venezuelan government and the French government have both come on record and made a statement that they will aid patients with PIP implants to the point where the Venezuelan government said they will remove them at no cost to the patient. The French government has made similar uh, assurances to women with PIP implants. So you know, the question is, is this an emergent problem? I mean, should a woman, any woman listening that has PIP implants quickly go and get those removed, or is this something they can sort of sit by and wait, and maybe if the no, implant doesn't no, I, break? I think she should have it done. Um, not tonight, but I think that I think it should be on the top of her list. Get it over with. Get them out. And, uh, and you, you'd feel comfortable about replacing and putting American-made silicone implants back in? Yes. You yes. know, it's interesting. I had a patient in the office, and I've seen a, a, a few patients about this PIP uh, issue, and it's, it's very, very important. In fact, I was sitting in my office uh, this week at the end of the day, and an email came in from a patient, and I saw it, it mentioned the PIP implant. So I personally picked the phone, and I gave her a call and, and spoke with her. She's a very nice, very nice woman. She was very concerned, and, and I think rightly so. And so we gave her an appointment right away. And an interesting thing, and I wonder what your thought is on this. Of course, there's psychological things that play into this. Because of having an issue now with this tainted silicone, I suspect that a lot of women will feel the way that this particular woman did, and that, you know, I just want to get away from the whole idea of silicone altogether and switch to saline implants. What are your thoughts about that? 
well, of course, the saline implant is is a is a silicone bag filled with saline, and um, and so you're still get it. You still have silicone, but um, I, I used the saline in several thousand cases, and uh, it just doesn't doesn't feel as good as a as a silicone gel, and it has a one to five percent incidence per year of leaking. Now, when it leaks, it leaks saline, so it doesn't hurt anything. But it means that there's a there's a loss of of volume of the breast, and so and so the saline implant to me was was uh, was uh, was it barely acceptable. And now that we have the third generation silicone gel, I wouldn't even think about using saline. Well, it's interesting. I agree with you in terms of look and feel. I think there's just no comparison when you, when you look at how a breast uh, looks and feels with saline versus silicone. Silicone, far and away, is more natural feeling and, and natural looking in most cases. Now, a woman with larger breasts, natural breasts, that you're putting an implant into, there's less of a difference because of all the natural tissue that sits on top of the well, breast implant. True. But uh, I, I think... You know, I think my recommendation when I see my patients, I always recommend that they consider silicone implants first, uh, because I think it does give a, a more natural look and feel. But I can also understand the hesitancy of someone who now has this tainted silicone, and you know, you you get you get nervous. You you, you carry your oh, fear, and and the of last course. thing I would want for my patients is for them to you know lay their head on the pillow every night wondering, gee. Is the silicone implant I have now, is it really safe? So I think if you don't have that trust and you feel more comfortable with saline, it's still a good device. You'll have a nice result. It may not be as nice as it could have been with an, a new silicone implant, but I would, I would venture to say that in most instances, having a, whether it's a saline or silicone implant, replacing your old PIP implant, you're going to have a nicer aesthetic result than you would just have those PIP implants. Well, you're, we're both saying the same thing, that the patient needs to speak with the surgeon and they need to have a very open conversation about about what she needs and what she wants and what she wishes for, and he give a very, very honest response to each of the, each of the issues, and then they come together and they make a decision. So that's, I think that's very true. Well, you know, I think the, the take-home message here for those of you who may have PIP implant in place or know someone that does, is that those implants really should be removed. There's a potential health risk there that needs to be rectified, and it's a very simple fix. Doing an implant exchange is not a difficult operation. It has very little impact on your body in terms of recovery. It's pretty easy to go through, uh, and I, I couch that, but I always tell my patients, there's no such thing as a minor procedure when it's done on you. But as, in, as procedures go... This is on the smaller side of the spectrum. It's easy to go through. It's a short recovery time, and you have the peace of mind of having those implants removed, never to worry again about that tainted silicone affecting your health. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the FDA's role with silicone uh, breast implants and something that happened in this country a few years ago. We'll, we'll get into that in great detail. We'll be back. Please join us after this short commercial break here on New Reflections. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, and I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Biggs, and we're talking about breast implants. One thing I want to say before we continue, you have an opportunity, if you have any questions about breast implants, to ask the person that has the most experience and probably the greatest knowledge on breast implants than anyone else in the world today. If you'd like to call the show and ask any questions specifically uh, to Dr. Biggs, or any questions at all, really, please call the studio at 866-472-5792. We'll take you on the air and take your question. Dr. Biggs will offer his tremendous expertise in answering anything you might want to know. Now, we were talking about the FDA and uh, how they warned the French government and just how much uh, scrutiny there is by the FDA on breast implants in the United States. Now, actually, if you go back about uh, 20 years, Silicone breast implants were accused of causing certain diseases, and the FDA took very rapid action, uh, really in abundance of caution without scientific evidence. Can you tell us about that? Because that, that's come full circle, too. We're now able to use breast implants freely for breast augmentation, the silicone breast implants. But there was a time, a period of 15 years or so, that we were not able to do that. What happened there? Well, um, there are several sides to every argument and and uh, and one could say well the FDA acted uh, imperiously and uh, without any reason and 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 that that certainly looks it certainly looks that way but the, in truth the companies were somewhat at fault as well uh, what happened was um, a number of women who had silicone gel filled breast implants developed some autoimmune diseases and uh, it, it and it it happened in Houston, in the place where the silicone implant was born. Interestingly enough, 
And they went to one doctor who felt that there was a relationship between the silicone gel and the autoimmune disease that this woman, these women had. And so the publicity around that got to the FDA, and the FDA began looking into things and found that the manufacturers had really been rather skimpy in their research. And not only skimpy in their research, but some of the research that wasn't going the way they wanted it to go had was canceled. So therefore, the, a negative response was not not discovered. And so the combination of um, of of these women's autoimmune diseases and the skimpiness of the research by the corporations caused the Federal Drug Administration to to prohibit the sale of silicone gel implants for augmentation mammoplasty until further research could be carried out. Well, it's taken years and years and years for the FDA to change its mind on that. And they did, just several years ago, uh, make silicone gel implants acceptable again. The interesting thing is that they didn't deny the use of the silicone gel implants for reconstruction. So yeah, that's always had, been very curious to me. <laughs> it's crazy. So if a yeah. woman had cancer and had the cancer removed and had the breast reconstruction with silicone gel, it was okay. So you had to have cancer in order to be able to receive a silicone gel implant. <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. And, and, you know, that just doesn't make sense to me because if you think the device is problematic, it can't be problematic only when used in certain procedures. That's right. I mean, if, it's, if it's problematic, it has a problem no matter when you use it. So well, but clearly, right. I think... But that's the you way know, they did it. And, right. Yeah, it is. And it just... It, none of the, the whole thing just didn't make sense. I think you're right. I think there was fault on all sides of, of the story. You know, the, the manufacturers were not as forthcoming with their own monitoring of their devices and their own research and, and perhaps didn't pursue both the good and the bad in the research as much as they should. And the FDA, I think, was put in a difficult position of not having enough information to make a good choice. And so I think they kind of chose a middle-of-the-road stance that didn't make a whole lot of scientific sense, but thankfully turned out to be okay because in the end, the implants really were found not to be causing. And the, and the diseases, by the way, we're talking about, the ones that we're talking about, autoimmune diseases, these are things like lupus, scleroderma. Uh, they're the type of diseases where your body's immune system uh, malfunctions and, and in some cases actually attacks your own body in certain ways. It just causes some significant difficulties. And there are a number of these diseases. Uh, lupus is probably the most common one that you'll hear about. And the, unfortunately... It's young people that get these diseases, most commonly young women, around the age where women might consider having breast implants placed. So it's not hard to understand how when you get diagnosed with a, a disease that's, that's not a real good disease to have, and you have uh, recently gotten breast implants placed, you think, well, gee, there must be some reason, because you know, people don't like to accept that bad things happen. There must be a, a reason, a cause. And so you look to the breast implants, and I think that's how it all kind of got started and then began snowballing downhill. And next thing you know, uh, the breast implants, the silicone-filled breast implants, are no longer good for augmentation. But then 15 years later, there were three studies done, two in this country and one in England, all looking at thousands of cases, and there's yeah. been no, no causal relationship. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Rizzi, I really am, am one who who often sees catastrophes as uh, opportunities. This catastrophe with the silicone and, and the FDA ruling, which was so terrible for 
everybody, for the patients and for the surgeons, has turned out to, to force the manufacturers to make a better implant. And so now we have Generation 3 implants, which really are better, much better than Generation 1 or Generation 2 implants. So in a way, this catastrophe forced the manufacturers into, into, into better products and forced them into better control of their products and has forced the physicians into, being, into participating more actively in a, in a, in a careful, uh, in a careful um, accumulation of their own data so that, they, that we do have some sensical, uh, reasonable evidence as to the course of these, of these products. So this catastrophe has turned into something good. Well, it's true. I think there's definitely a lot more data being collected, I think. And, and people that don't know, when you put in for the years uh, leading up to the final approval, which happened in 2007, and even in the years following 2007 when silicone implants were allowed to be used for breast augmentation again, even uh, before that, when we were using silicone breast implants for reconstructive purposes, the the surgeons using them had to be enrolled in the study, and we had to collect data and see patients back at certain intervals and make sure things were going well. So there, there's never a time in this country where we've had better information about a medical device and its long-term effects than we have about breast implants. And another thing, I think you're right about uh, leading to making better implants because now with the silicone fill that we're using we're getting the, the less you know, really we see lower rupture rates and when the when the rupture happens you're not having the same response because the silicone gel is a, a thicker type of gel and it's not pouring out the way a saline implant would pour out the saline so i think we have safer devices we have more natural looking and feeling devices and i, I think you're right part of it is owed to uh, all the work that was done since that 1990 ban by the FDA. And you mentioned the word rupture. I, I think the rupture rate is extremely small, and even that small number, if we look at very, very carefully, we can find that it was probably damaged on insertion. The, um, the manufacturer can go and look at those implants and study the microscopic um, edges of the disruptive part, and they can tell exactly how it happened. And they can tell if it was cut with a scissors. They can tell if it was torn by a by a blunt instrument. And and by and large, almost all of those so-called rupture rates were were implants that were damaged on insertion. And and also another way, another way they can be damaged if the in, if the surgeon is trying to make too small an incision, and he's putting too much pressure on the implant when he's pushing it in, he can he can damage the implant, and and the manufacturer can tell that as well. So. So really, the implant themselves are, are just terrific, terrifically safe, but need to be put in in a proper fashion. So once again, progress is, is continuing, and I think that we do have a safe implant now. Well, absolutely. The implants have really come a very long way, and, and that actually brings us to uh, talk about how implants have changed. You know, in the beginning, we didn't have this variety that we have today it was pretty limited when the, you know when you guys put in that very first implant uh, you, you did it on Esmeralda that the first uh, animal to have a breast implant then you moved on to your your human patients and it began to grow how many types of implants did you have to, to work with well, originally we had four and they were entitled large medium small and petite 
And now, if you look in the in the catalog of implants, you can find 470 choices. That's just amazing. 470 <laughs> different shapes what, and what sizes. It, what, what it means is that, that the surgeon needs to have some education. And I, I, when I lecture on this, I talk about telephones, how my grandfather had a telephone you cranked, and, and the operator would come on and you'd tell the telephone operator who, who you wanted to talk to. And then we had the dial-up kind, and then you had the fancy kind that had call holding, call waiting and everything. And now the telephone that we talk on, you can get on the Internet and check the rainfall in Zimbabwe. So, but you need to have you have to have a lot of education to to use all these new instruments. You have to have a lot of education to use the implants, and there are a variety of ways of determining that. And and um, you, you certainly we, we we no longer think of volume. We no longer think, oh, that's a two eighty or a three forty. We now use the dimensions of the chest, the dimensions of the breast, along with the laxity of the tissues, along with the patient's needs and desires. And so we put those those factors together, and we can come up with with a, a close number. And then in the operating room, we oftentimes have sizers, and we can put the sizer in to see how it looks. And if it looks okay, that's the implant we open up from, for, for permanent use. Then there's a third step forward, which is very, very important. It's 3D imaging, where you can get the patient, take three pictures of the patient, select the implant that you might want to use, Put that information into a web-based, with, with your Internet, with your computer, and within 60 seconds get a 3D image of that patient with that implant in. And I think that's a tremendous step forward. And yeah, it so, really is. It's incredible how much information we have yeah. and so how much you can really see. all sorts of, of, of techniques now that can help determine what implant he or she wants to use uh, with each patient. And the patient can... Play a role in the selection of the implant because well, I think I think that's critical. I think you know you talk about critical. understanding what the patient wants. Yeah. But to me, that's the number one part of the of the process. You really need to understand what the patient's looking for. I spend a huge amount of time talking to them about that, and and that that's an important thing. We're gonna when we come back from break, we're take one last break. When we come back from break, we're gonna talk about how. That, that process goes, what the options are, some of the, the latest technology, and what's new on the horizon. We'll just take this very brief commercial break. We'll be back right after these few messages here on New Reflections. Okay. Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. If you need a coronary bypass procedure, you probably want someone you trust and not the biggest bargain in town. You might get more than you bargained for. This is your face and body we're talking about. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust, and you can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation in a multilingual office. That's 305-792-7575. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard and the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. We're here on New Reflections talking with Dr. Thomas Biggs, uh, and we're talking about breast implants. We're having a fascinating discussion. We, we've talked, we've kind of gone from the dawn of implants, where uh, whether it was the lipoma at first put in in 1895 by Dr. Cherney, going to Drs. Uh, Cronin and Giroux, and Dr. Biggs working on the first breast implants in 1962, and now we're here today in 2012. And there are some fantastic new options that we're going to talk about. When we went to break, we're talking about how important it is to understand exactly what the patient wants. And I think it's important when you're looking around at surgeons, choosing a doctor to help you with your breast augmentation, you really want to find someone that spends a lot of time listening to what it is that you want and that has a process to understand. Because it's not enough to have a quick talk and say, well, you know, I'm a 34B, and I'd like to be a full C, and so uh, that's really what I'm looking for. Because you're saying when you think you'd like to have be a full C may be very different than the image that doctor's getting in his or her head when they're planning their procedure. There really are lots of tools you can use, 3D imaging, just comparing static 2D images, having extensive discussion, looking at sometimes at simulations or getting some idea. But I think the number one thing for me that is the greatest tool that I have, is using those sizers. I spend a lot of time in my office before surgery talking with my patients and getting an understanding of what they'd like to have. We, we pour through pictures that they choose, both the pictures they like and pictures they don't like, and, and we run through them, and I get a really good sense for the look they're going for. But even then, I haven't decided the implant I'm going to use because you just don't know how something's going to look until you get it in place. And by using the sizers which I use on every single breast implant case. I can get in there and put a temporary implant in that size, or I can blow it up to whatever size we think is going to be the best size, and then I can adjust it up, adjust it down, and take a look at how it's responding to the patient's tissue. And by doing that, I don't have to guess. I don't have to use a mathematical analysis to tell me which implant's the best. I use my eyes and my knowledge from what the patient and I have discussed extensively and when I see in that patient with her tissue, with her muscle, her breast tissue, her skin, what, that, it, what the implant looks like, I can choose the one that looks the closest to her ideal result and give her the best result. And I think those sizers are underutilized. And with the new technology we have, I would just say you probably don't want to get caught up in choosing your implant and being too firm with it in advance. You really need to be a little more fluid in your, in your selection process and in the operating room so you make sure that patients are getting the very best result given their anatomy and their skin. So I think those sizers are really critical. I know, Dr. Biggs, when, when I worked with you, we always used to use sizers. Yeah, uh, and I think that, that, we, that the patient should be discouraged from, uh, from hooking herself to a number like a 280 or a 305 because 
Well, those numbers, uh, those numbers are real, of course, but but women's chests are different sizes, and uh, they can be broader or they can be less broad, and also the tissues can be lax or they can be very tight, and so so the one one size does not fit all. So a, two, a 280 doesn't look the same in 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 any two people. Because that's right. That's exactly right. And I always tell my patients, you know, the patients frequently come in. They say, well, I want to be a full C. And my friend had uh, 375 cc's, and that's what I think I want. Yeah. And then I explain, just like you're saying, you know, 375 in your friend looks different than 375 in you. In that's fact, right. <laughs> even right. from even from a woman's right breast to her left breast, it's going to look different. That's correct. So it's very important that the surgeon be flexible, that they have the techniques to be able to use all the different sizes and shapes of implants that we have available. So let, let's talk a little bit about what's new. Well, we have 400, over 400 sizes of and shapes of breast implants to be used. And, and so what's the latest, Dr. Biggs? What's well, coming the latest on the thing is the 3D imaging, of course. That, that, that enables the patient and the doctor to sit down and look and try different implants. And, and, and with, with, this, with the system that I like, they can see how they look in an evening gown. They can see how they look in a bikini with that <laughs> selected implant. And she just amazing. Like she doesn't like it. Well, just punch in another number, and 30 seconds later, you get another picture. So I right, but now, when we're talking about breast implants, though, the actual devices. Oh, you know, the devices. What's well, the, what's we're the, the third that? stage, and it's, it's a triple barrier shell, methylphenol methyl shell. And a, and a varying levels of viscosity or a thickness of the of the gel, depending upon what you want. So, but the, the, once again, these require education to, to choose. But this is new, and um, and then beyond that, we have fat grafting, and uh, uh, we can now spend fat that grafting. Time. Yeah, that's something that is really really exciting. Well, I know you're working you're working hard on an entire hour or an entire day talking about fat <laughs> grafting because because uh, fat grafting is here, and we know now that. To get successful fat grafting, we have to use very, very tiny little droplets of fat. That lipoma that Cerny put in in 1895 did not work, I'm, I can promise you, because it was too large and it did not get its blood supply. So we put in very, very tiny little molecules of fat in micro ribbons, and, uh, and, and so that, that's extremely important. And it's also extremely important to have the, have the recipient site prepared properly. And I often use the, the, uh, analogy of the farmer. The farmer has to plow the field first before he plants his seeds. So the breast has to be prepared to receive these implants, and we do that with a device we call a Brava that the patient has to use for three weeks before surgery. So fat grafting is, is, is not simple. It's very complicated, but very, very effective and has a tremendous future. Absolutely. And when you're talking about using the Brava, the Brava is a device that is, uh, it's a, it's a mechanical draw of sorts that a woman will wear on her chest. It forms vacuum seals around the area of the breast. And using that vacuum, it pulls the skin forward. It pulls the, the breast tissue and the muscle forward and creates a little stretch that helps the tissue grow and get a little softer over time. And that's why it has to be used for a number of weeks before using the fat grafting to do uh, either a breast reconstruction or breast augmentation. And it, and I, from my understanding, Dr. Biggs, you're also using it for a certain degree afterwards. Is that right? Oh, yeah. 
But what it also does is that it tremendously increases the blood supply to the breast tissue, and we and that it's imperative that the fat grafts have plenty of blood supply to to make them live. They can live on their own for two days, but they have to be they have to get a connection to a small little blood vessel within two days, or they die. So this this brava really does prepare the soil so that we that the grafts can be planted. So that's the way that is, and. It's uh, that's very complicated. We're doing it. In, we're doing it a lot in reconstruction and making having beautiful results with fat grafting following reconstruction. But these are large. Now, vo- these are large volume graftings. These are right. these are three hundred, three hundred fifty, sometimes four hundred cc's grafts. Well, let me ask you uh, because we're talking about breast implants today, and, and I would love to have you back and talk about fat grafting. We do a whole show on that. Yeah. Uh, but but now talking about breast implants, fat grafting can be used in conjunction with breast implants. Oh, wonderfully, right? yes. Sometimes, if if you have an ex- tremendous, tremendously slender woman who wants breast implants, you know that the edges of the of the implant are going to be either visible or palpable. So what we can do is we can sort of fatten up the area that's going to be receiving the implant, so that so that the the contour of the implant is less noticeable. And we Fantastic. can do that preoperatively, or we can do it at the time of surgery. And I think that's a very effective way to, to enhance the implant in a very, very slender woman. Well, you know, we're, we're running out of time, and I just want to get the, one big take-home message out. And, and we talked about it earlier. We've, we've really talked about the whole world of breast implants from the very beginning now to the latest and greatest. And I think the message that I, if you're listening to the show, make sure that you understand breast implants are safe devices. They are still good to be used. You can get beautiful results with breast augmentations, with lifts and augmentations, and certainly with reconstruction of the breast. And the most exciting thing that Dr. Biggs just been talking about is the use of fat grafting, in some cases, without an implant. You know what, Dr. Biggs, we'll have you back for another show. We'll talk all about fat grafting. Okay. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Dr. Thomas Biggs is the world's greatest authority on breast implants. There's no living person in the world that has been around them or knows more about them than Dr. Biggs. Thank you so much for coming okay. on the show. Thank you for inviting me. And I, I, if you, I'd love to have you, uh, everyone listening back. Next week, we're going to be talking about our New Year's resolutions. We're going to have Dr. Grant Stevens joining us again on the show. We'll talk about all the things you think about doing new for the new year. New year, new you. And we'll talk about it next week here on New Reflections. We hope you stayed informed and entertained today on New Reflections. Please join your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, again next Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You can also email the doctor at info at dr-rubenstein.com or visit his website at www.dr-rubenstein.com. And don't forget to join us next Saturday for New Reflections on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a beautiful weekend.